We are in our series, Ground Zero, because this was a nuclear-like event that took place in terms of what happened here in this temple. Even though this was dramatic, come later, God's judgment would be poured out upon Jerusalem in the temple in a way that was uh, rarely seen in the history of the world. Um, That's why we call this Ground Zero. We covered last week the reasons for the Jewish passions being so high against the Gentiles. Basically three reasons. There was this desire for religious purity with all of the ceremonies that took place that the Jews did that the Gentiles had no interest in. So there was a separation religiously. Uh, There was also a racial animus between Jew and Gentile. These two groups basically did not like each other. We saw that in the book, uh, in in the Gospels, and we certainly see it in the book of Acts. You might remember when Peter had that vision of the sheet, and there were these animals that they weren't supposed to eat that were in the sheet, and, and in that passage, as Luke was relating uh, about this later in writing in Acts 10.28, said that the Jews did not want to associate with people from another nation. Don't want to have anything to do with those people, okay? It was that kind of attitude. And then you had a nationalistic or patriotic uh, kind of thing going on with the Jews, They wanted to be separate from Rome. They wanted to have their own thing, to be God's people, separate nation, sovereign nation, enjoy all these benefits of being God's people. They did not want to sit under Roman rule. And so the yearning for this had been going on for centuries. This is quite a melting pot, uh, a brew, a strange brew of passions in which, you know, these Jews and Gentiles just had this animosity towards one another. Now, while these elements help us to understand that aspect, it really doesn't explain why there was such a a red-hot hatred for the Apostle Paul, uh, who was before them in the temple in Acts 21. Now, we covered last week the bogus charge that these Jews had against Paul, that he had brought a Gentile in to the temple where a Gentile wasn't supposed to be, Trophimus from Ephesus. Now, it didn't take place, but they accused him of it. So they're either lying about it or they didn't have their facts straight. But either way, they were wanting Paul's head. In fact, the Romans gave them the right to execute somebody on the spot for this. If they went into a certain portion, if a Gentile went into a certain portion of of the temple. And if you look on the screen, you can see number four was this, it's called the Sorig. It was a little wall that had an inscription on it that went all the way around the temple and Gentiles were not to go inside of that. The inscriptions on the wall said this, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who's caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. (laughs) Wow, so keep out, right? I love those neighbors, you know, keep off the grass. You ever see those? They don't want kids, you know, just touching the grass, you know. It's supposed to scare the kids. Well, how about this? We will kill you, <laughs> right, if you get into this area. And, uh, and they meant it. Now, 
this might explain why Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 of a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile being torn down because of the work of Christ. That's the dividing wall. There's a literal wall. And so Christ breaks that down to where Jew and Gentile can come together and enjoy the oneness of the body of Christ. So now the Jewish faction that was behind this false charge about Paul were really red hot that Paul had allowed, or they think that he allowed, this Gentile to be in the temple. And it caused basically a riot inside the temple. They wanted Paul dead. There's actually more fuel that's thrown on the fire. And what we have to understand are the words of Christ before any of this even took place. The Jews hated Christ and they rejected Christ. And this is some interesting things that are said about this. John 10. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, you know, as if he hadn't been speaking plainly up to now. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Clearly, not, you know, not into Jesus, right? Now, imagine thinking that you are God's chosen people, that you've got the inside track to knowing God. And then Jesus says this, and the Father who sent me has borne himself witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. <laughs> I mean, whoever thinks that Jesus, you know, uh, didn't lower the boom and Jesus was just some kind of mamby-pamby, have never read the Gospels. I mean, he was in their face telling them the truth. I've, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For you believed Moses... If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You rejected Moses. You rejected the scripture. You reject me, Jesus says. So how can you sit here and think you and God are like this? 
and listen to Jesus explaining to his disciples how his followers are going to be treated when people reject and hate him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If they had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And then Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Paul was a Jew. And he converted to Christ. And they hate him for it. They hate that Christ was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. So they hate Christ. They hate that Jews have been converted to Christ. They hate that Paul speaks of the gospel of Christ. They hate all this talk about not having to keep the law to know God. So they reject the grace of God in Christ. All this hate was why Paul was targeted as an apostle. They want to see him dead. So they grab Paul, they take him out of this temple, and they close the door. It's, as we mentioned last week, a kind of metaphor for the final rejection of the Jews of Christ and his messengers. They ignored the words of Jesus, who in Luke 21 clearly spelled out for them judgment. Jesus spoke of judgment. And it was to those who rejected him as the Messiah. And he proclaimed that Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be destroyed. That's what he said. And then on August 10th, 70 AD, basically within the same generation, Titus, the Roman general, invades Jerusalem, and the city's destroyed, and the temple, gone. Burned to the ground, not one stone upon another, and a million Jews are killed. It's like a nuclear bomb went off. So that brings us to our passage. We're going to read 
the whole thing, and then we'll start with verse 31 since we covered up to verse 30 last week. So let's all stand. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, the seven days completed, if you're new, this was a, a vow that Paul took with uh, four other guys, a Nazarite vow. The idea between him and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem was if he did this and he paid for the sacrifices in this vow, it might express to the Jews that he's not against the law, all right? He's actually friendly to the law, but they didn't quite see it that way. This is the man who's teaching everyone uh, everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with them in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once told soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was, what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So connected to the temple was a Roman garrison called the Tower of Antonia. And let's put the picture up right here. This is on the northwest corner of the temple, and you can see these four high towers, about a hundred feet high. Uh, this was built by Herod in honor of his friend Mark uh, Antony, and the inhabitants of the temple were a, a Roman uh, cohort, which could be anywhere from 300 to about 800 soldiers. And a cohort was stationed here to oversee the Jewish festivals and keep down any insurrection that the Jews were prone to have. A lot of violence, a lot of uproar. So a tribune 
was an elected Roman official who oversaw the cohort. We know the name of this guy. It's given to us in Acts 23, and it was Claudius Lysias. So the tribune was in charge of the cohort. And Lysias takes with him a good number of these Roman soldiers, including some officers or centurions. And when the Jews see them, they stop beating Paul. Now, if the commander of this Roman garrison had not arrived, Paul would have been dead. And the Jews said that Paul had profaned the temple. And again, this is either a lie, uh, a deliberate lie, or they just didn't have their facts straight. But by God's will, he thwarted the attempts of this riot. So Lysias approaches Paul. He has him arrested, chains him up, it says, with two chains, probably one for his hands and one for his feet. Lysias was trying to find out the facts about what was taking place here, and it was difficult for him to get to the truth because of, you know, one, the fake news, and the other, the screaming that was going on. Things were so loud. This is the last time we see Paul as a free man. He's rescued from this by the Roman soldiers, but notice there's no miraculous escape from captivity. In fact, for five years now, from Acts 21 to Acts 28, Paul remains captive, either under house arrest or actually in jail. But he's going to continue to preach. He's going to continue to give witness to Christ. And we are reminded of when the soldiers grabbed Jesus in the garden, who was in control? Just like Who was really in control of this event in the temple with Paul? When those soldiers grabbed Jesus, a few years before the event in Acts, it says then, Jesus said to them, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will not once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And do you remember in one of the other gospel writers what took place when the soldiers came? It's like, you know, Jesus just gestures and they fall to the ground. These are the guys coming to arrest him and it's almost like God saying, hey, don't forget who's in charge here. They fall to the ground. They didn't all just trip. (laughs) They fell to the ground. It's an amazing thing. And we also read, that when Jesus was in a temple, that, uh, and they wanted to kill him? It says this in John 10. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So you have these episodes of God's people. Some are martyred. Others escape. Either way, God is sovereign and in control of the situation. And in Paul's case, it just wasn't his time, and God allowed him to escape. I think there's some truth here for us, my friends, because we as a people may experience situations where there's an injustice done to us. 
Uh, We may experience situations where we're really under a lot of pressure. You may have some people reject you. Uh, You may have some people that don't want to have anything to do with you. And yet, behind it all, while it seems like everybody's against you, God is still in control. That God is still working behind the scenes. So what do you do when an injustice is done to you? What do you do when somebody says something about you that's not true? There's an accusation. Is God asleep? How, do you, how are you to respond? Well, in the book of James, there was a situation of some rich Christians that were being very prejudicial towards the poorer Christians in the church. And this is what is written in James. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So we're to look to God for ultimate justice. Even when maybe we've exhausted our efforts, you know, you try to make something right, people don't want to have anything. They don't even want to talk to you. So the injustice you feel continues. What do you do with that? Is God powerful enough to execute his justice, either here or in the next life? Absolutely. It may be it's what keeps us from throwing a brick through the television when you watch the news, right? You see all this injustice and the things that go on And yet, be patient. The judge is standing right at the door. And in Paul's case, he said and did what he could to defend himself and the gospel, but ultimately, his life was in the Lord's hands. Secondly, we learn to embrace and practice justice ourselves. Even though we might have an injustice done to us, we can still look out for those and help those that perhaps our society rejects. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Those who are down and out, those that society typically rejects, it ought to be the church, it ought to be God's people who are standing with them, no matter how your political party looks at it, that is not what determines your actions. It is our king of this kingdom that we serve in the kingdom of God that says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And when he come to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and, the, and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So when they reached the steps of Antonia, the soldiers had to lift Paul up and carry him to protect him from the violence of the crowd. Now, this may have been because Paul, you know, he's already been beaten. Maybe he couldn't walk, or maybe because he was chained, or maybe both. But the mob was still crying out for Paul to be killed. 
And just as they were entering Antonia, Paul asked to speak to Lysias. And Lysias seems surprised that Paul knows these various languages. And he thought initially Paul was some Egyptian imposter who claimed to be a prophet. History tells us through Josephus that there was such a man who had quite a following, thousands of people. And this Egyptian came to Jerusalem around 54 AD and led a group to the Mount of Olives with the promise that they were going to overthrow Jerusalem. Well, the Romans caught wind of this, attacked them, killed about 400 of them, and a couple hundred others escaped along with their leader into the wilderness. And they're amongst this group were what were called assassins. And what they would do is get in the middle of a crowd where there's a lot of people, you can hardly distinguish one person from another, and they would have these daggers that would slit the throats of people in the crowd. And it was then hard to know who did what. So as they mingled, they did their dirty deeds. But this guy somehow escapes, the leader. And so Lysias is thinking, is this our guy? But Paul replied, hey, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Now, do you not find it quite miraculous? The guy they were wanting to kill, the guy where there was so much screaming and violence being done that, you know, Lysias was standing next to Paul. He couldn't even make out what was going on being in the middle of the crowd. Things were so loud. That same guy who they wanted to kill gets up on these steps, just raises his hand, and everybody hushes up. You know, who's really in control here? And Paul sets the record straight concerning his identity. He's a Jew, and he's from a prominent city, Tarsus. Now, later on, he would make clear his Roman citizenship, but that didn't, need, that didn't matter as much now as it would later. But knowing that he's from Tarsus, Lysias knows what this means. Tarsus was a highly educated city. It'd be like saying, well, you know, I grew up uh, on the grounds of Harvard. I mean, you, that would mean you're probably very educated, and plus, with the fact that he's a Jew, rouse the curiosity of Lysias, and he gives Paul this opportunity to speak. Now, we might be tempted to think, because Paul remains captive for the next five years until he dies in a prison in Rome, that all these speeches he gives in these chapters were useless. They did no good. Well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think rather that God was still using him in the midst of his captivity. That Paul was still affirming the gospel, giving his story, seeing people come to Christ, and he continued to faithfully proclaim how God had worked in his life. Now, I don't know how Paul pictured his life ending. I suppose it was no surprise to him that he suffered, and I think that we might get a little tidbit here about why people get so 
bent out of shape when things don't go well in their life. It happens a lot, right? In fact, it's the number one reason that people give up on the idea of God because it's called the problem of evil. And people don't understand how there can be these trials, and most of them are personal to us, that happen, and there still be a God. And somewhere along the way, we got this sense of entitlement. That if I, if I give God my life, if I do what I should do, then God's end of the bargain should be, okay, pamper me just a little bit, give me enough of what I need, make sure I don't have you know, X amount of problems, you know, I, you gotta show me that it's a great benefit. But you know, if you're not gonna give me a little something here, God, then I'm out. I, you know, I, I can't do this thing of not having enough money. I can't do this thing of having issues you know, in relationships. I can't do this thing of you know, having conflict in my family. You know, I made this decision to follow you years ago, and I got this mess I got to live with. So what's up with that? Well, <laughs> listen, we got a choice, right, of who we're going to depend on when we're in the middle of a mess. And what a ruse Satan weaves when we kick God to the curb at our most vulnerable time. Because when we're in that mess, when we have the family situations, when maybe, you know, the money is short, isn't God the one we need to look to? Isn't Christ the one that helps us to understand our security, our significance in him? Isn't he the one that can meet us in the valley and encourage and equip? I mean, when Paul was converted to Christ, he was told that he was going to be a witness of all that he had seen and heard to relate his story of how God had changed him. And whether in prison or free, that's exactly what Paul did. Paul's life was not evaluated on the basis of how easy things went for him. That was not the indicator of the victorious Christian life. My bank account, the car I drive, is not the indicator of how big my faith is. Being free from sickness is not the indicator of the victory I have in my life. I'll tell you what is. Whether I continue to express faith in the midst of those things for good or ill, in poverty or in riches. I'm not saying we have to apologize when we're healthy or apologize if you have wealth, be thankful, use that for the kingdom. That's great, enjoy it. But God is there with us in poverty or in wealth, in sickness or in health. And Paul continued to testify of Christ wherever he was, in whatever circumstance he was in. Now, if God were to say to Paul, hey, Paul, I'm going to give you an opportunity to speak to thousands of Jews in the temple, and you're going to proclaim the gospel, but in order to get there, 
you first have to suffer a beating. And you're going to be thrown in prison. You up for it? Obviously, he was. He was saying yes to that. I wonder what we'd say. Now, right here's the time in which, you know, the preacher makes people feel guilty because they do not have the willpower of the Apostle Paul. No. That's not the point. See, I don't think it's because Paul possessed some, you know, great character that made him so much better than us in terms of his commitment to continue being faithful to God in the midst of these circumstances. Actually, I think he was very frail, very weak, and understood his humanness. And he was desperate to depend upon the living Christ in a moment like that. And that's where we go wrong. Instead of depending upon God in those moments, you know, we think we gotta muster up human strength or whatever, It's not about that. It's about understanding, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you to go with me. I need you here. I need you to give me the words or whatever the situation is. And I'm in. I will do whatever it is you're asking me to do. And if if it's suffering, all right. But I know you'll go with me. And I'll say yes to that. If it's riches, okay, I'll say yes to that. (laughs) But I'm still gonna serve you. Now, I don't know about you, it's much easier to forget about God in the riches, in the health. Why? It's a very human thing. You know, I must be doing all right. God and me, we're like this. Check this out. We missed the point. Paul wasn't going to go one day blaming God or kicking God to the curb. He needed God in his freedom. He needed God when he was enslaved. He needed God when life was good. He needed God when tested. Hardship. God is there. Riches. God is there. You can look at Paul as a hero if you want. And that's fine. I think think that's cool. But is he any different than you or I? Is he any different than any of us who, you got cancer, you lose a job, your spouse says, I'm out. Hurtful times, tough times. Are you going to still be faithful and trust God in the midst of that? That, to me, is the hero. See, I don't think we're as separate from Paul as you think. And that's what God, I think, really encourages us to understand is the bullseye, is that faithfulness to him in any circumstance. 